Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help. 
I interviewed Sue Miller a while back and am releasing her episode today. Thanks to all of you who listened to my very personal, heartfelt episode that I released this weekend about my family's losses. Thank you. I'm sorry I made so many of you cry, but thank you for all the direct outreach as a result of that episode. I just sort of had to get it out of my system. Anyway, Sue Miller. Critically acclaimed and loved by readers, Sue is recognized internationally for her elegant and sharply realistic accounts of the contemporary family. Her books have been widely translated and published in 22 countries around the world. The Good Mother from 1986, the first of her 10 novels, was an immediate bestseller more than six months at the top of the New York Times charts. By the way, I totally remember my mother reading this when I was little. Subsequent novels include three Book of the Month main selections, Family Pictures, which was nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award, While I Was Gone, which was an Oprah's Book Club selection, and The Senator's Wife. Her novel, The Arsonist, and her nonfiction book, The Story of My Father, came out recently, as did her latest book, which we talk about in our interview, which is called Monogamy, which, by the way, I keep leaving in front of Kyle just to give him nice reminders that it's so important. (laughs) Not that he needs them. Her numerous honors include a Guggenheim and a Radcliffe Institute Fellowship. She's a committed advocate for the writer's engagement with society at large, having held a position on the board of Penn America Center. For four years, she was chair of Penn New England, an active branch that worked with writing programs in local high schools and ran classes in prisons. She has taught fiction at, among others, Amherst, Tufts, Boston University, Smith, and MIT. And by the way, we did this interview from her bathroom, and I even made sure that she took her shower cap and moved it out of the screen. So we were were immediately bonded (laughs) for this interview. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm completely in sympathy with the title, and um, I'm glad to be here. (laughs) It's such a thrill for me because growing up, my mother had your books, and just the idea that it's like come full circle and I get to interview you is is just such a, I just get such a kick out of it. So, and just as does she. (laughs) Your latest book, Monogamy, was so great, and I'm so excited that we're going to do a book club about it, and I just fell into these characters' lives. Would you mind just telling listeners who might not know what it's about a little about the book and what made you, what inspired you to write it? Well, it is a character-driven book completely, I think, as most of my work is. I just, I'm really interested in exploring human nature and human foibles and so forth. So we have two main characters in this book. Graham, who's a bookseller, the husband in this quasi-monogamous marriage, um, and, and uh, a kind of bullion, enthusiastic guy. He, he loves good food, and he's a little overweight, and he loves wine, and he loves his wife, and he loves books, and he, he needs to have people around him, and he needs to have people love him also. And he's married to Annie. They've been married for about 30 years. And she's a much more, she's a quieter personality. She's also much smaller than he is. Um, They've gone to a party once years earlier as Santa Claus and and one of his elves. She's a photographer and she is in, at the moment the book begins, she's, she's about to have a show for the first time in some years and is full of anxiety about her career, which she's basically been full of anxiety about most of her professional life, but she's particularly anxious now because it's been a while since she had a solo show. And you sort of get at the beginning of the book, a kind of flavor of their life together and the way they exchange and they're each of their, I move around between their brains essentially in third person. And so sort of can enter them and explain them a little bit or have them explain themselves. 
And then quite early on in the book, it gives nothing away, really, or maybe a little. Graham dies in the night of a heart attack so that Annie wakes up and he's, he's dead in the bed next to her. And she's sort of numbed and shocked. And then, as she must, begins to call other people who might to whom this will really matter. And that includes the other main characters in the book. So they get introduced actually by being at the end of these phone calls. And the first person is her daughter with Graham, Sarah, who's in her late 20s and lives in San Francisco. And and they have a reasonable relationship, but it's a little strained. And Sarah loves her, has loved her dad enormously. Just he kind of rescued her through a tough childhood and adolescence and has a lot more difficulty with this quite reserved and, as she sees it, unknowable mother. And then she calls, actually, the next person is Graham's first wife, Frida, who has been, by his wish, just very much a part of their marriage, partly because they've had a child together who is, you know, Annie's stepson and and is very much, of course, in Graham's life. So she's just a member of the marriage in a certain way, Frida. And then she, Frida, turns, you're with her now, and she calls her son and Graham, her and Graham's son, Lucas, who's in New York. And basically, the book sort of moves around among these characters and, and, and their grief and what his death means to them, and then how they connect to each other after the death and what sort of happens between and among them after the death. And there's a lot that happens. And there's also, he, Graham is not out of the picture in a certain way because his relationship to them and their memories of him and, and things that happened with him and so forth are, take up a lot of energy as the book moves along, too. So that's the kind of basic way it's set up, I guess you would say, and the people we care about, or I care about, and hope I make you care about along the way. I so. cared about them so much yes. um, from <laughs> the very beginning. And I actually, you spent so much time orienting us to Annie and Graham that when he died, like, I was very sad about that as opposed to having it happen on the first page before you get to know him. Mm. Like, I felt like mm. he really got us into their marriage and the bookstore and his character and what he was like and them sitting drinking wine. And, like, I actually, I knew that's what the book was about, but I kind of, like, forgot to the, like, once I was in it and then it happened and I was like, oh! <laughs> anyway, I felt a sense of loss. So, well done. Yeah, it was, it was so good. I couldn't help but think, like, this must have happened. Like, you couldn't, are, did you, you couldn't have made all this up. Have you gone through something or a loss like this? Like, the it just seems so vivid to me, this whole scene. How did you, like, how did you come up with this? Did you lose somebody really close to you? I know about your father from your memoir, yeah. but tell me a little more. And, and then uh, I had a friend a long, long time ago, but I, I was remembering his his wife died in her sleep, and he really told me about that, how just incredibly strange it was to wake up and have her dead. But I think I think my father's death informed me a lot, too. I was with him as he died, essentially, over a long period of time, 10 days or so. And so that's it, probably. But, you know, I've never had anyone that I was in love with die, especially not die in bed next to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there's nothing to laugh about. No, it's okay. (laughs) And then I noticed you gave both Annie and Frida mothers, I think mothers who both were battling Alzheimer's as well in the book. So that, that was yes. one of the common bonds that they had, right. perhaps with your, you know, experience with Alzheimer's yourself, or you yeah. wanted to just put that in, or what was that about? What made you put that? Uh, well, I had, 
yeah, it was in part that. But I was I was thinking that there needed to be ways in which they became friends. Annie resisted it very much at the beginning, sort of thinking that it was sort of too uh, sort of modern and kind of silly. She thought of it really and a little embarrassing almost to be to welcome this person as a friend who was once married to Graham and had a child with him. Frida had less trouble because she'd sort of lived with Graham through the whole era of the 60s and 70s when, you know, all the rules about how marriages were supposed to work were sort of deliberately broken, at least by people in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as far as I could tell. But they needed to have ways to slowly become very close friends, actually, which they do. And so I just gave them that, that they both... Because I actually, when my father was ill, it was so comforting to me to talk to my husband then and just to sort of talk about what was so funny that had happened that day in his crazy world that I was part of and had to kind of agree to to go along with. And then, of course, awful things, too. And that sort of, I I think Frida is who says that that seems to her to be the nature of this disease, that it's amazingly funny and amazingly awful at the same time. And that's what they share with each other, actually. And then just over the years, you know, they're always together at holidays and Frida's just always there because Lucas is there, her son. And it would be, it, since they all live in the same neighborhood, it would be strange not to have her there. And Graham very much wants her there. He's, he's continued to have a really warm relationship with her, regrets what he did to their marriage and that sort of thing. And it was so neat how you had the stepmothers get to know, or maybe not the stepmothers, but yeah, the stepmothers, like, yeah. get yeah. to know the other child by the other <laughs> yeah, that they sort of, the children get along better with the stepmothers. Yes, Each of exactly. them has, has his or her own reasons for having trouble with his or her own mother. And so they do this almost sort of trade for a while when they're entering adolescence and then through adolescence. Each of them is more helped by the other mother who's not really his or her own mother. So, yeah. So how do you do it? Like, how do you, how did you invent characters, particularly Annie, but also Graham and I guess every supporting cast member in this book, but that are just so incredibly real. I mean, I feel like you inhabited this character of Annie more so than almost any other character I've read, like in every little detail and how she does every little thing. Like, how do you structure that? How do you, how did you come up with her? How do you make sure to, show the reader so much about her, it, it seems like magic to me. It sort of is. I mean, I, in the sense that I really can't account for all of it, but I think that I love the, the close third person. And that's the, the voice in fiction that lets you, gives you the most fluid access to a character so that you can sort of sit a little bit away from the character in the third person and talk about what she's doing. And then you can step right forward into her brain and, and sort of essentially speak in her in her voice and, and speak about her reactions and speak about what she's sort of saying to herself. So I think a lot of it is that, the wonderful sort of fluidity of a third-person narration. The other thing is I make a, an enormous number of notes before I start to write anything so that I can feel that I know the character quite well. It just notes, for instance, about what they what they hate, what they believe, what sort of books they like, or things like that. Just And I've always done that. I mean, I, I feel as though, I mean, just in very simple ways. I mean, I'm not writing. I'm not writing the book at that time. I'm just making notes to myself. And then they, and then as soon as I begin to write anything they say, 
it's sort of like you feel you know someone maybe if you're online dating or something and you think oh this person sounds so interesting and then they speak and you think oh my god no or this is how I met I've never done it actually or you think oh this is you know, such an interesting voice and I think it's as soon as I begin actually having them speak to someone that just sort of does it for me I sort of invent the, the, the voice and that makes me comfortable with everything else if I haven't if I feel it's right so I love doing it I mean that's one of the, the main sort of impulses for me in writing fiction is to make what I hope are believable characters. And that my sense is that that's when you get most deeply engaged in fiction is when you actually sort of think these people are real. I mean, you know, they're not, you know, they're fictional, but that's what I want to get you very close to believing anyway. No, it's, it's like you're like when you're in a movie theater and all, next thing you know, you're sobbing. And two hours before, you didn't know who that character even was. And now you're completely emotionally invested. It's yeah. a longer version here. Yeah. <laughs> More immersive almost. So what part of this book was the first germ of the idea for you? Was it Annie? Was it, one of the, was it Annie and Graham? Was it the thought of a loss? Was it dying in the sleep? Like which part of it was like, oh, I think I'm going to write about blah, blah, blah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, it, it was actually had to do with my father's death and then the aftermath of that. And after he died, I was just sort of swept by grief. It just would not release me for a couple of years. And so I just, and I actually, you know, tried therapy. I tried this and that. I was on antidepressants for a while. But I decided I would write a book about him, also about Alzheimer's disease. At that time, the stuff you could read about Alzheimer's disease was either sort of sappy, you know, you've got to, you've got to get a hobby and you have to be, be with friends and it just wasn't useful to me. And then the other thing you could read was incredibly technical stuff. And I felt I wanted to write a book addressed to the reader, telling her or him something about my father and also talking about to some degree about the kind of moral and ethical issues I felt were raised by my sort of being the one with him. But I felt also as I was doing this book about him that I sort of uncovered new information. I talked to friends of his 
And my sense of him really changed over the course of writing the book. And I felt very sort of connected to him in a way, in a new and different way. And that made me feel different myself in my relation to him. And so I wanted to explore that feeling of contact and change after death with someone. And in this case, really, you know, falling out of love with someone and then falling back in with someone long after he's dead in, in Annie's case. But I wanted to make it, that was the sort of feeling I had about that great mystery of death and the way one can change over time, the way one feels about the dead person. So I started with that and then thought, okay, it will be Annie. She was the first character. It will be this woman who, and sort of I thought of some things. And then Graham arrived and once he was on the scene, he made me immensely comfortable with everything else in the whole book because that's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> he just, I was charmed by him. And I also wanted to present him as a complicated person, someone you'd have to sort of think, well, that wasn't so nice. I mean, sort of, and, you know, you might even feel that he's awful. I mean, in some ways he is awful, but he sort of recognizes in himself his terrible need and his, anyway, I, I wanted to make him as complicated as possible while also trying to make you like someone very, very complicated. So that was the impulse, though, really, was to sort of have this, this whole thing after his death that goes on with Annie in particular, but it, it happens with other people too, a kind of shift each of them feels, each character about Graham's presence in her life or his life, and not always good. I mean, in some cases, sort of looking at everything a little more, with a little more distanced eye too. But it was just sort of, I, I've described this before, but when I was taking psych classes in college and afterwards, we used to do these sociograms where you make a circle and you put all the people you're considering around the edge of the circle. And someone acts or something happens to one of the characters and you, you trace these radiating lines, what it means to this person and what it means to this person on the circle. And each of them reacts and their reaction crosses the circle to this character and this character. And they, by the end, you just have this sort of web of connection and feeling and whatever else is going on, anger or joy. or And that sort of was what I wanted to be doing was to just watch this circle of people and their, all their connections with each other, the ones that kind of worked, the ones that didn't work, and just look at how complicated it was, but try to make it easy for a reader to enter and to look at, too. Wow. It was a world, you know. Yeah. Was it hard? <laughs> like, tell me about what it was like writing this book. Where, like, where, can I have a visual? Like, where did you write it? Was it at home? Did you like to go to a library? Or where did you write it? And then, because it's so immersive, like, did you ever have trouble sort of putting the work aside and going back to your real life? No. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, that's good. I have trouble like that. And I, I wrote it over a long period of time. So I wrote it in many different places. But basically, most of the time, I wrote it in my office or in and then we have a little place in the country and I wrote it some there too. But I write in longhand, first draft. And so I can move around. That. What I like about it is I can move around the house. One of the things I like about writing in longhand, I write in little books. And, and so that was the way I wrote it, essentially, in the places I wrote it. And, I, and I, there was a lot going on in my life and in my family's life right then. And so there were periods of time when I wasn't working at all. And even now my, my granddaughter lives in Germany and she's young. 
she's 12. She's sort of also old, but she's young. <laughs> and when she comes to stay, that I just drop everything, essentially. And so she, a few, like I said, I think about four or five years ago, she began to come and stay for the summer. So that was a, just a huge sort of open space in terms of my getting any work done and that sort of thing. But, you know, and I've never been incredibly disciplined about my work, I'm afraid. But so it took a very long time, this book, and probably I think benefited from that in some way or another. I think it sort of had these pauses where I could just stop and think about it and make a few little written notes in my, in my notebook and so forth to think about for the next time I actually sat down. And then I just type that, all that stuff in and then pull it out and then write over that for the next draft and, and just type it back in again. So I waste more paper. More trees have been consigned to death by me because of all the in and out that I actually physically do instead of just changing things on the computer and not you know, having to use that much paper, which would be just much better to do, I know. But I, that's the way I work. I, so. for, I forgive you on behalf of everyone because at the end of it, I mean, then you get these masterpieces. So there you go. I mean, it's worth it. Whatever, everybody has their own process and everything. (laughs) So how did you get to be a writer at the very beginning? Like if you go all the way back to the beginning of your career, what, how did you get your start? I always wrote. I wrote as a little kid and I always invented stories. I can remember these little girls down the street, a little bit younger than I, when we were just, you know, I must've been like in fifth or sixth grade and they must've been in second or third, they would wait for me to come from down the street to their house and we would proceed on to school together because they wanted me to continue this fairy tale, essentially, that I'd begun with them. But then I really, I wrote a lot and all through my childhood, silly, you know, horrible things. But I actually won a a Scholastic Fiction Award in high school which is, is a lot of very distinguished writers have, have won that, Truman Capote and Joyce Carol Oates. And so I entered this world of real writers in a certain way. But And I, I wrote a couple of novels after college. Well, one right away and then one that took a lot of time because I got married and I had a child and I got divorced and I was a single mom and working and so forth. But I never sort of thought of it as a career somehow. I just assumed I would always do it. I didn't much care about publishing at that point. And then at a certain point in my life, in my mid to late 30s, I began to send out a few short stories that I'd written because it sort of occurred to me, I'd gone to a few writing classes just to make myself finish things, which I rarely did. I just wrote and then because of the circumstances of my life. And it, I was sort of looking at the other writers and thinking, well, I'm actually a lot better than they are and and my actually my teacher encouraged me in that case and so I just began to send things around and they got taken almost everything I'd written from the first story I wrote I mean they didn't get taken right away I had to send them to six places or something starting with the places that would have paid me a little bit of money or a lot of money by my standards then and then when my son was a little bit older when he was about 10 I really started seriously writing a novel. So I had two unpublished novels that I'd written before then, and quite a few short stories. And then I thought that I would write something that might get published. And that was the first time I thought it. I was probably 38 or so, something like that. And it did. <laughs> it was The Good Mother, which was my first book. And it was, it was, it just changed my life in this sort of astonishing way that was really kind of shocking and 
discomforting. I mean, I sort of thought I was in charge of my life and I knew what it would look like. With the short stories that I published, I was able to begin to teach writing here and there around the Boston area, which is a great area to be in if you for sort of part-time work like that, because there's a lot of writing programs and a lot of writing requirements at various colleges, and there are a lot of colleges here too. So, But that's what I thought my life would be like. I would write and I would teach and you know, sort of go on living at the same, you know, sort of quasi-poor. And that was fine with me. I didn't, there was nothing about that that I didn't like. And then suddenly all of that changed. And I did feel for a while really out of control. I mean, that I was not in control of my life and sort of discomfited by it a little bit. And that's the story. Wow. <laughs> so once you had this major success, did you find it hard to follow it up? Like, did you feel pressure to perform on your next books or were there things in the works or how did it affect your writing, this like huge success that you had? The main thing was I was determined not to do the same thing or even the same kind of book. So my first book was narrated in the first person and at the very center of it was a courtroom drama, essentially, where in which a my main character loses custody of a child. But I just stuck right with her, and it was a very dramatic plot, to to say the least. And so I really decided deliberately that I wanted to do something very unlike that, because I didn't want to be, now that I had a publisher who was sort of waiting for I didn't want to be doing the same thing and become the person who always wrote that. Although now I'm the person who always writes about family and domestic life. I mean, that's the way I'm sort of categorized so I ended up always writing that anyway. So the second book that I wrote, my father was ill and dying during that period of time. So again, I was sort of slowed down, but it was about a whole family, moved around from person to person in the family, and it, it covered about 40 years of their life together, and a family with an autistic son, and everyone's everyone's response to that person in, in the midst of the family is, is different and it's complicated, and, and again, it's like a sociogram that book was, essentially, with all of these people whose lives were connected, and there was, there was much more to be um, really angry about for everybody, or, or troubled about in that, in that book, really. So it was, I just wanted to announce, you know, I'm not doing anything you think I'm going to do. Um, and I loved that book. I mean, I, well, I liked them all, but that was amongst my favorites, I think. I don't know, which I, I haven't ever sort of organized. This is my third favorite book, <laughs> my sixth favorite book. But anyway, so I dealt with whatever pressure there might have been by just saying, I'm not, there's no pressure on me. I'm doing what I want to do. And so there was a little pressure to do something very different. That's true. But I wanted to do it. it wasn't, I wasn't doing it because, because it was different. A little, but not all the way. Yeah. And how do you continue sort of reinventing what you want to say and do, like what advice would you have to aspiring authors, people who are starting out, who want to have a career like yours, for instance? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I, this would be, not be something I think you could deliberately do, but I think it helped me a lot not to feel I was launching a career, mm-hmm. that, I, you know, that I was doing this thing I wanted to do, which might or might not be at the center of my life. And that made it easier for me to just sort of please myself, essentially, with what I was doing. I think also to just go as slowly as you can. I mean, I had, you know, as I said, I'd written two novels before The Good Mother. 
And, you know, I sent one around a little bit, but instantly sort of didn't want to do that. And I think just to wait until you until you feel really, really certain of the book that you're sending out, until you love it yourself. Just, you know, it's the very best you could do and not be so focused on, I mean, I was old for a writer. My book, my first book came out when I was 46, my first novel. And it's, it's hard to say, you know, let time go by or let, I mean, there certainly are people who wrote, have written wonderfully, very young. And so I'm not prescribing anything. But I, I feel I benefited by being a little bit more relaxed about things. The other thing is just to, to read and read and just be asking yourself all the time, why am I, you know, why do I feel this way about this character? And sort of look at what's on the page that you know, just practice in that way, I think. Or think rob some people uh, technically, essentially. Do you have a type of book you like to read in general or a certain genre? Do you like to read what you write type of books or totally different or... Both. I mean, I yeah, I like to read uh, what I write, but I also like a lot of other different kinds of books. And but you know, one of my favorite writers is Alice Munro, mm-hmm. and she's just her the form she writes in is completely different from mine, and she's but she's utterly brilliant. And then the British writer Tessa Hadley, who you know, I think she's much more interested in sort of writing about adolescence, I think, and growing up, although there's a lot of quite wonderful, I mean, she's a wonderful writer. I, I really love her work. I mean, Brian Morton's work is, a, I just kind of wait for his next book to come out. So it's sort of varied. And I just read this really wonderful book by the unfortunately named Michael Crummy. <laughs> he hated, but he's a very established Canadian writer called The Innocence, the plural, and it's just as different as it could be. It's sort of set in Nova Scotia with, with a few children who, whose parents both die and they sort of set up living alone in the, in the 19th century, I think it is, or maybe the early 20th, but I think the 19th. And it's just the, the sort of story of their, their complete innocence, of their not knowing anything about anything. Really. <laughs> it's a very... It's just an it's an amazing book. I can't recommend it highly enough. So that sort of thing. And then you know, I like to read some nonfiction. Yeah, I'm pretty. I move around a lot, um, but I and I think I'm more judgmental of books like mine, the sort of domestic books that I sort of feel I'm more critical of them. I think because it's more like the work that I do, probably. And I think we should have done that better than you did. You know, uh-uh. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't want to see the novels that I have stashed in my drawer then. (laughs) Anyway, well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. Thank you for so many delightful moments reading monogamy over the last couple of weeks. And I'm excited for you to come to my book club and talk to everybody there. And now I want to go back. I have to read your memoir about your dad because it sounds Mm. like such a moving emotional experience and relationship. So anyway, hopefully by book club, I will have read that too. <laughs> Great. Well, it'll be good to see you again. I'm very glad to have met you from my bathroom to your bedroom. Or wherever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is yeah, a Zoom, very Zoom universe. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day book blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.